the Cuban government didn't do much, so it was up to the people themselves. And they figured this all out, and they didn't have anything. They had no petroleum, no fertilizers, basically nothing. As I said, people came to help, and I saw six or seven different schemes to produce natural fertilizer that I know to have a good reputation. But they said, you know, we've done them all. The worm compost is what does it. And they had these large concrete troughs where they were producing a lot of worm compost. And they mixed that into that clay, and the stuff was growing like crazy. You're listening to the Sharing Insights Podcast, a show where we explore stories, strategies, and insights from ecologically and socially beneficial projects throughout Costa Rica. These stories provide landowners everywhere access to unique ideas to inspire better business models for greater success and impact. My name is Jason, and I'm a co-founder of one of these unique places. I've been visiting with other owners of impact centers to discuss the successes, challenges, and insights that they've earned along the way. Join me on the adventure. A more sustainable world awaits. Today's interview is with another well-known veteran in the sustainability movement here in Costa Rica. Peter Kring is a nurseryman and farmer who has over 30 years experience in tropical agriculture. He's introduced many valuable species into cultivation in Costa Rica and maintains a collection of over 200 species of fruit trees. His farm Finca La Isla in Puerto Viejo is a successful family farm and it includes a very impressive botanical garden and nursery. Peter is an advocate of farmers markets and is the president of the committee that manages the market in Puerto Viejo. Finca La Isla offers a plethora of workshops in horticulture, medicinal plants, chocolate making, fermentation, and farm-to-table practices. In today's episode, Peter shares with us his insights into sustainability through producing goods to sell at the farmer's market. He also touches on organic certification, what it takes, and whether it's worth it. Beyond that, Peter shares with us his preferred soil amendments and walks us through some of his fruit forest maintenance. For all that and more, get yourself a pen and a paper in preparation for your peek into the world of Peter Kring. Peter, I want to ask you a question. This is something I ask all of my guests, and it's it really takes a unique person to want to come to a foreign country and buy a piece of land and plant it up as abundantly as you have. And you did this 30 years ago when the whole culture of foreigners being here growing ecological projects was really just starting. I mean, you even described some of these trees that you were the first to bring in the country. So what is it that drew you to buy land and start doing an ecological project like that here? It seemed like an easy thing a logical thing to do, maybe a, through a process of elimination. But some people thought that, you know, I was taking a lot of risks. And for me, it just seemed like the natural thing to do, that uh, that everything was perfect. And, you know, at the time that we did it, it uh, some things were a lot harder to do. But um, also, it was easier to buy land then than it is now. And so we got that out of the way pretty straightforward. But actually, before we bought land, we've accomplished a lot here, but it's taken a long time. And we came to Costa Rica, and we were actually deciding between Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, and Ecuador. And when we came to Costa Rica, we rented a house outside of San Jose for about uh, eight or nine months, bought a car, traveled around the country, looked at places and talked to people. And then we uh, decided on to give Puerto Viejo a try. 
on the Caribbean coast, Southern Caribbean coast. And we came down here and we rented a house. And um, four months later, we bought our first piece of land. And it was a piece of five and a half hectares. And the idea was to work about five hectares of land in a responsible and sustainable way. And, you know, things like permaculture and agroforestry were just getting going. It was a wonderful time. And uh, there were other people that were working around as we were. Not everyone has stayed with these projects, but um, over the period of years, we bought two more pieces of land. And so we have about 17 hectares, about 45 acres of land. More than half of it is forest and probably always will be. And we've opened up the land. As you can see, we converted from one tree crop, cacao to a plethora of other tree crops. And so we have open areas that might be an acre, they might be three acres, but they're all surrounded by corridors of rainforest. The corridors of rainforest are for the animals, and they're also to support the soil. So we figure that by having forest nearby, there's a downside to that. Trees come crashing out of the forest onto your, the area that you're working and, and so on. But it really helps support the land and contributes to the health of the soil. Great. Yeah, no, having the, the forest around is definitely a blessing and a curse Something the, the jungle grows so fast and you're just always contending with it. You want to plant it up, but then you got to keep it back. And you want to plant it up and you got to keep it back. So definitely in a super humid region like this, I can imagine that's even more escalated. Yeah. You learn a lot from the forest. And, you know, I was at a, a friend's place who um, doesn't live here. He has a project. There's a lot of people that um, come down here and buy a piece of land and they have a dream of doing something like what we're doing, but they're not going to do it until they retire or something good happens to them and they're able to do it. And so we're planting over there and his workers say, ah, no, you got to use these chemical fertilizers. And I said, you know, we don't uh, we don't use that stuff. And he says, well, nothing's going to grow because uh, the soil here is not that good and nothing will grow without it. And his place is like mine in that there's a lot of forest around. I pointed at the forest and said, well, what about that stuff? How does that stuff grow? Oh, yeah, well, that's natural. That grows there natural. I said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do that. Go walk in the forest there and see what's on the ground. It's not scraped clean like you have around these trees. It's got all these leaves and everything and leaf litter, and there's a cycle, and the trees can live fine like that. And so that's what we're going to do. Our farm is certified organic, and we have terrific fruit production, and we don't use, uh, we don't use any chemicals we never have used. How long have you been here for, I don't know, over 30 years, I think, now? And uh, how long in that journey did you choose to get certified organic? What brought that along? So that's an interesting thing because there's two cooperatives in this area that you can be certified through those cooperatives. And this is very inexpensive. And that certification is appropriate for selling on the local market in Costa Rica. In general, you're going to have issues trying to export with that certification. But it's not that the quality of the certification isn't good. It's a, There's a whole system where people need to get paid. And so that's what it comes down to. But um, so I was first... Um, 
certified by a cooperative in um, Six Ola Valley called Opta that specializes in cacao, but they also have other products. And um, I was selling some stuff to them, but hardly anything. And I worked with them. They're difficult to work with. They eventually asked me about um, letting the certification go since I wasn't really doing much with them. Okay. Now, I am certified again. Organic certification, it's not really something that I need to have because um, my place is well known, my reputation is good, and I sell my product here at the farm and I sell it at the farmer's market. And so people at the farmer's market know that they, some of them have come here to look at this place. Others have heard that, that it's good and so nobody questions whether it's organic or not. But as a promotion for the farmer's market, our farmer's market is not specifically organic. It's a mixed farmer's market. And so we wanted to have a section of the farmer's market that's exclusively organic. And we needed to help people get organic certification. So around eight of us uh, got together and petitioned this a different cooperative that specializes in organic bananas to um, uh, help us with that. And so that's called a Capro, and it's based in Hone Creek. And that is where we get our organic certification now. And so there's a section of the farmer's market that people put out their certificate there, and, and it's recognized as being organic. And people that don't have that certification are not allowed to say that their products are organic, which has been a problem in the past. Okay. Yeah, that's a, a method I've heard a number of people using in our region as well, and one that uh, i like to look further into myself, this idea of joining an organic cooperative because it seems like it's maybe cheaper and faster to have a cooperative that's already certified and then you do whatever you need to do to associate with them, yeah? According to their guidelines? Yeah, it's way cheaper. It's negligible what you pay. For your own private organic certification, it is the cost becomes a factor, but they have a special deal for these cooperatives, and I think the cooperative pays the same as one person would pay. Oh, wow. Sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's, it's very little. The cooperative comes and inspects once a year, and the agriculture ministry also comes and inspects once a year. The hardest thing is um, basically there's a lot of requirements. And every time you bring something to the farm, every time, you know, when I got a lecture on, on what we had to do, it said it's like having your own country. So everything that comes in has to come through the customs. Everything that goes out has to go through the customs. And so you're supposed to write this all down. And so all your sales, any uh, materials that you bring to the farm, bags of calcium carbonate or some other thing like that. You make biochar as we do. You're supposed to report that. That's all supposed to be in this book and the sales of, of all the products that you sold for that month. And so they go over that book on, on the inspection. Otherwise, they look around and a place like this looks real good to them. They're not very concerned. You know, there's one or two places in our uh, in our group where the people are next to a farm that's not organic. And so there, there's an issue and they need to have a good barrier and everything. But this is all real good here. Wow. Great. Yeah. I'll be looking more into some associations in our region. You talked about uh, the forest and talking to your neighbors about this idea of, well, using the forest as a teacher, yeah, for uh, growing. And I know for producing 
food for a market or all of these great trees and bromeliads and things that you have that you're putting out, you have a lot of it set in this kind of natural setting. It's not really a sterile nursery. It's not, and we saw some of the the trees that you're actually just growing in the ground out in the field for sale later. And this idea in permaculture comes up a lot about imitating nature, about basically observing how the natural processes work and then making systems that accelerate that. Yeah, or accelerate a value of that. And what are you doing here that kind of brings that natural element and those teachings of nature into what you're building here? So as I said, in the the forest floor is covered with with leaf litter, which is all manner of leaves and sticks and anything that happens to be there. And that can be pretty deep, actually. It can easily be a foot deep. And so that's the first lesson right there. And so we want to have, we want it, we keep putting stuff around the trees. We'll, we'll bring out, there can be a place in the forest where a tree has fallen over some, some time ago and is half rotten. We get that often, break that up and come and put it around underneath the trees. And um, so we need to make that efficient. We also need to apply microorganisms. There's microorganisms working in the leaf litter. And if we pull that leaf litter aside, we can see the clay underneath. Then in the process of that, we're going to see mycorrhizae, uh, mushrooms and the evidence of bacteria breaking down those leaves and more often than not root tips of the trees that are feeding in there and so that's all going on there we if we just bring those leaves out and toss them on the ground they might be too dry those things might not do well the microorganisms so we apply microorganisms and it need to be applied when it's wet when it's dry we let them go but we also make biochar and we put biochar as a refuge for the microorganisms so all this stuff is happening and you know as occurs naturally in the um, in the forest floor there's also going to be uh, manures and so we sometimes apply manure and um, other organic um, ingredients of other organic composts and stuff and so basically it's that and uh, some trees are known to have certain cycles and need certain things and with durian which is becoming a specialty of ours we're trying to make a natural potassium by burning potassium rich stuff such as cacao shells durian husks and um the stems of banana fruits and stuff like that. We dry that, we burn that. That's an ash that's rich in potassium. You that dry can, the banana stalk yeah, and burn it. Yeah. Huh. And okay. and then we apply that ash under the tree. And um, that can help induce flowering. So that's something I've done a couple of, um, I've been twice to Malaysia uh, in the last three years and um, doing farm stays. Um, especially on durian farms. And organic durian farms do that. Uh, Non-organic just apply chemical like uh, potassium sulfate, potassium nitrate, that sort of thing. And uh, like people do with mangoes in, in Costa Rica and in Florida to control flowering. So most things, you know, when I do these farm stays, 
A lot of them are not organic farms. There are organic farms, but many of them aren't. And some of the best farmers are, are conventional farmers. But you can learn a lot. And in most cases, there's an organic substitute for the conventional practice. In some cases, it's more expensive, it's more trouble, but that's what we do. Yes. I support that. Yeah, it's worth it. And I love the visual and the, the just the practice of, you know, like we're saying, like accelerating the natural processes, taking what we find in the forest and bringing it to the base of our trees. It's great. So in all this attention that you're giving to the trees, it's not just for personal sustenance. Again, you're, you've got a model here that's successful, that's keeping you going and growing, which is this cottage industry of taking fruits to the market and trees from your nursery. In in all of this, how do you keep track of all of the tasks required to get the type of production that you rely on? You know, I think that's easier with trees than with row cropping and some other types of, of farming. But the farm is a business, and, and so there need to be some priorities there. And, you know, we have a lot of things that we just like, and we like to see them around, uh, whatever. But um, basically, we prioritize the farm as a business, and it's the only way that we can do it. And I think that also it's important as an example to local farmers, that it is possible to have an organic, sustainable farm that is at the same time a successful business. A lot of people, foreigners, wealthy Costa Ricans, will just have a hobby farm, and they employ workers, and the workers see what they're doing, and this is cool and everything, but these people have a lot of money. They don't need to sell anything. This isn't anything that I could do. This doesn't make any sense for me. So when we are doing some things that might not be so easy to understand or that somebody wouldn't do it right off, but they do see that we are producing stuff for sale, we're making money with the farm, and so that can be convincing then. And some of these people, they go to work for somebody, they've got to spray herbicide, they've got to do a bunch of nasty stuff. We don't do anything like that here, and the farm makes money. So... You said you, you do a bit of outreach helping local farmers uh, transition and take on new practices. Do you have a formal type of, I guess, guide for doing that? No, because every case is different. And so people come and I talk to them and sometimes I'll go to their farm and see what they're doing. But they're generally clients of the nursery. And so I help them and give them special deals and try and... Um, make sure that it's going to go good for them. But uh, I usually find them uh, as they come here looking for material to plant. So they can see that I'm selling these um, mangosteens or and all these other fruits. There's a lot of fruits that I've introduced here. And sometimes I'll have 10 different kinds of of fruits, every one of them a rare fruit at the farmer's market. And so uh, Costa Ricans are really good fruit buyers. They like these fresh fruits. They're open to trying the new fruits. And so I've been very fortunate there. You know, with the pandemic and there being zero international tourists through this whole last fruit season, a lot of businesses just shut. But we sold more fruit than we'd ever sold because just Costa Ricans and the people who, the foreigners who live here, 
but more Costa Ricans, they're excellent fruit buyers. And I can spend five minutes or more sampling fruit, 10 minutes to a foreign tourist, and what they buy is next to nothing. So yeah. we sell chocolate and we have cacao. We make chocolates. Another thing we do that's turned out really well, the foreign tourist buys chocolate. The Tico buys it too, so we're selling chocolate all along, but it's like a like low season right now because there aren't any any of the foreign tourists for for the botanical garden for buying chocolate but for selling plants and and selling fruit it's been very good a lot of people just let their employees go i've kept everybody and we're just uh, we're working through it and so it's good that's great so if somebody wanted to replicate that like me for instance i have hundreds of fruit trees around my farm and to be honest uh you know we don't have an active fertilizing or amending cycles for things and and we get harvest and it's inconsistent and definitely nothing I would really rely on yet for sustaining us. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's got some things planted, they're excited about putting more in the ground, but they've got to create these systems. Every tree needs something different. They need different cycles and foods. And so what kind of approach would you suggest for someone to set themselves up for success? You know, I know that that problem well. I have been overconfident in the past with um, something getting going good and then and then the production falling off. What I tell people, I mean, it depends on what it is and the situation on the ground there and everything, but generally you need to put something back. You're taking the harvest and, and going away with it and you need to put something back for the tree. And so I think that a combination of um, of minerals, especially calcium carbonate, another good thing to use is, um, and it's organic, is rock phosphate. Rock phosphate is more expensive, but you use less of it. This is something that helps rooting a lot. The other thing is simpler, is using um, manure. We use chicken manure from laying hens. The laying hens are given... Um, a feed that has more calcium in it. And um, the thing about that is that that needs to be composted ideally for six months, whereas horse manure and cow manure you can use pretty much straight away, I believe, but I don't have either of those. Uh, the other thing is um, worm compost. This is a big project, but you know, I went to Cuba eight or nine years ago and I went to a place that's famous that I that I found on a, from a YouTube video. It's outside Havana. It has about 60 workers. And these guys have terrible soil. I can show you photos of this. And the soil is just the worst-looking red soil that you could imagine. But they're growing all the mint for the mojitos at that place, acres of it. And all this other stuff and, you know, sweet chilies. And it just looks like a terrible place to plant. And... I'm asking these guys, how are you doing this? And they took me back, you know, and they've had a bunch of different people come, different NGOs, and wanted to help the Cuban people when they were going through this especially difficult time uh, after they'd been abandoned by the collapse of the Soviet Union. And people were really hungry. And, you know, the Cuban government didn't do much, so it was up to the people themselves. And they figured this all out, and they didn't have anything. They had no petroleum, no fertilizers, basically nothing. As I said, people came to help, and I saw six or seven different schemes to produce natural fertilizer that I know to have a good reputation. But they said, you know, we've done them all. 
the worm compost is what does it. And they had these large concrete troughs where they were producing a lot of worm compost. And they mixed that into that clay, and the stuff was growing like crazy. So that's something that we've come lately to ourselves, and I feel pretty good about that. But the chicken manure, the worm compost, you need these things for nitrogen, I think. And um, calcium carbonate, rock phosphate, chicken manure, and uh, lombre compost, I think, is a good way to go. That's what we're doing along with um, what we've been doing for a long time. It's just a lot of biomass, biochar, and microorganisms. We buy microorganisms. We used to use EM, but they moved and became more expensive. And, and the place where we were getting them before is a university called Earth, and that's got a terrific reputation. That's the same laboratory where they were making the EM before. They're making something else similar now, and that's what we're using. All right, great. So ultimately, I mean, really the key is to continue feeding the soil, continue layering up biomass, bring those microorganisms in, bring the mycelium in, and just create a new environment under the trees. And do you have a schedule of proactively feeding things you know are going to need it, or you just kind of monitor and see what needs it and give it on a case-to-case basis? You know, that's a good question. So the microorganisms, we only apply when it's rainy season. We don't apply much when it's dry. And some of these other things, like the durian, for instance, that's got a special cycle where after the harvest, then you're supposed to prune and even prune a lot of tips, but do shaping, pruning, dead branches, anything like that, and they prune the tips a lot. And um, then they apply um, nitrogen. And so we apply our, um, our chicken manure and that stuff at that point. And um, then as it's coming up to the flowering season, then um, we apply um, the potassium, the ash. And after the flowering and the fruit sets, then we go back to the compost and to for developing the fruit. It can be a little bit more complicated than that, but that's basically what we do. And that sort of thing works with most stuff. I really don't grow much citrus and I don't do much for it. And um, a lot of these other crops are, are not very well studied like the durian is. Mangosteen really doesn't need very much. We occasionally put some calcium carbonate, but we also will keep it going there with a little bit of compost and stuff. You know, it drops a lot of leaves. Cacao does that too. And so that helps a lot. Mm. The cacao needs rock phosphate and manure as well. And um, if you have enough cacao, you often have some production, but it's got different peaks of production. This is the main peak right now, October, November. And uh, we've been having a good cacao harvest. Good news. So Yeah, so that's good. Sounds like uh, besides amending your soil and mulching your trees, you've also got a practice in there of pruning. You said pruning the tips, and that's after the fruiting cycle. So what's the advantage of pruning the tips there? So if you prune the tips, then it comes back with a bunch more growth. So it induces um, more foliage production. 
because the more surface yeah. area of branches you have, yeah. So the then, foliage, then the more fruits essentially. Well, you cut it back like that; it may it instinctively then it wants to come out, and it's going to come out with more than if it wasn't pruned. And when you're cutting tips, like uh, how many centimeters? You know, instance? like about uh, eight to fifteen centimeters. Not much. Not much. Mm-hmm. And you do that with most of your fruit trees after harvest? No. You know, with rambutan, for instance, we might cut off two meters. Oh. There's, uh, because the rambutan is an aggressive grower, and so we need you need to keep on top of it. The other thing about it is when you're harvesting rambutan, you're cutting the sticks back, and so you may as well just cut more when the last time that you pick. Rambutan, it's not good to just pull the fruit off. Then it doesn't fruit as well. It needs to come out like that, and you can cut a lot. In the case of the durian, the durian falls on its own. We don't pick the durian. In Thailand, they harvest durian. They pick durian, but the rest of the countries don't. And um, the quality is better if you just let them fall on their own. Mm. Great. So what kind of trees around here would you not want to prune the tips from? I don't prune the mangosteen, although we could, and I've heard of pruning it, and, and there could be reason to prune it where the tips are crossing from the tree next to it. But in general, the Garcinias, which is a large family, both of Asian and American trees, we generally don't prune those trees. And, you know, one of the things is that's interesting about those trees is that the majority of them grow just as wide as they do tall. So a lot of trees, you're pruning to keep them from getting too tall. And like we talked about with the rambutan, then you can't get to the fruit. The mangosteen is a nice tree to climb. Uh, the branches are horizontal. You can stand in that tree, and there's always some place to hold on to. It's not a dangerous tree to be climbing and picking. No, you got some massive mangosteens here. We picked that with three people at a time and picked two trees, one person up in, in each of those two trees and another one on the ground. And the ones up in the trees, they're picking with a basket. We don't let the fruits fall. We used to. It's a bad idea. So um, we're picking with a basket on a stick. He's filling a bucket. And when that bucket's full, he lowers it down. The guy underneath packs that in a crate and sends the bucket back up. Between doing that, between the two trees, he's picking whatever he can reach from the ground. So you pick a lot of fruit like that. It's not super cheap to pick, but the fruit gets a good price and it's worth it to make sure that the quality is all good. And so that's what we're doing. Great. So you've, you've, you're definitely diversifying. You've got a wide variety of tropical fruits that you're tending to and harvesting. You've got bromeliads, fruit trees, grafted trees, all a whole spectrum of plants. You said you've got like over something like 400 different uh, species of plants and fruit trees around We've here. We've got more than 200 kinds of fruit trees. And I don't know about the rest of these things. Uh, I go through periods where I used to get a lot of palm seed and plant palm seeds. And actually, I haven't been doing that very much lately. I, my business has gone over to fruit trees, and it's been what I've been the most interested in and, and where everything's been going here. Uh-huh. I do have people that come for ornamentals, and we really appreciate them and, and work on ornamental gardens here. So you also have this other aspect of what you're doing to sustain your place, and that's value-added products. Can you tell us a little bit about planning for that? Okay, so the most important one is making chocolate, and we've been making fine chocolate for about 10 years. We're the second people here to do that, and uh, now there's, uh, I don't know, 
five, six, seven different uh, chocolatiers and people come here looking for chocolate. And so that's a good thing. I wouldn't grow cacao as a business without making chocolate. Cacao is a good example of why it's so important to have value-added product. People that are growing cacao, just growing cacao to sell cacao, uh, are poor. And I don't really see how they're going to get out of that. You know, sometimes we have to buy some cacao. And if if we don't have enough, cacao sells for less than $2 a kilo, say about a dollar a pound. We pay 4 to $5 a kilo, more than $2 a pound, just because that is a fair price. And our chocolate's not expensive compared to the other chocolate people, but cacao is so cheap that um, it's a terrible business. And you always hear, oh, you know, the Chinese are going to buy cacao, this and that, and the cacao price is going to go up. It's going to be hard to get chocolate. I've been hearing that for a long time, and I don't see it as yet. By paying more than twice the going rate for cacao, then we're able to really insist on quality and people know they really appreciate our business and the cacao better be good. But I could go and pick over cacao and reject cacao and find cacao that for a lot cheaper. But we pay we pay way over the, the going rate. So we make chocolate. Chocolate's a good business. Um, chocolate can keep for some time, at least two, as compared to fresh fruits. Black pepper we grow, and that's always been a decent business. We dehydrate uh, fruit, and I sell dehydrated fruit. I grow organic ginger. Uh, we make crystallized ginger. There's a bunch of little things that I sell at the farmer's market, which is pretty much what I'm relying on these days now because the we have two main fruit seasons and when that's on then it's very busy and and you can sell a lot of fruit otherwise uh, at the moment I have very little fruit to take to the farmers market but I go with the chocolate the dried fruit and the black pepper and and all that stuff and it's more than worth it great here in Costa Rica some years back there was a blight on cacao and I imagine that you, with the variety of cacao you have here, that might safeguard you some toward a, a future potential. But hypothetically, if cacao got wiped out and your chocolate production suffered, what's another value-added product you might pivot to? You know, um, I'm not sure if I would if it would be hard to replace something as good as chocolate we used to make um we take stuff like energy bars and a bunch of stuff like that but um those kind of things come and go and um i don't have something um you know we're planting some different things that can produce good nuts and we would see where we would go with that you know I've been drying um, rambutan, mamoncino, lately, and uh, that's really good. And somebody told me that they use that as a substitute for a lot of energy bars and, and things have dates, dates in them that you can use the dried rambutan as a substitute for dates. Oh, great. So I don't know that it would be as good as chocolate. Chocolate is something that um, people say that everybody likes chocolate. It's not so. I know from sampling chocolate that that's not so. But chocolate, people are attracted to chocolate. Chocolate is a hard thing to replace. When you talk about drying, I know for me, dried food is a value-added product that I've considered getting into quite a bit. What kind of dehydration systems do you use? 
So um, we use electric dryers. And when we dry cacao, we dry it in the sun, and then we finish it in the electric dryer. That makes sense. It needs to be super dry or it can spoil. We've had that happen. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you need to know about drying. And actually, in buying cacao... It's hard to buy cacao that's really dry. And I tell the people, it's got to be dry. And, oh, yeah, it's dry. But it's not that dry. You know, it doesn't really snap. I like to snap a cacao bean and then take it and move it between my fingers. And it should just be powder that falls down. That's dry. And I don't need a, a device that tells me how dry it is. That's dry. If it's like bends before it snaps and it won't do that, then it's not dry enough and we need to dry it. And you're buying cacao like that, then, you know, you've created a job for yourself drying it, plus you're paying for the moisture that you're not going to use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But an electric dryer has been working. Yeah. So we use Excalibur dryers and that works really well for us. I've seen some good, you know, uh, there's a place, Finca Tierra, that um, has a pretty good um, drying system. But, you know, with cacao, you get away with drying it without, um, or at least beginning the drying with the fruits and the black pepper, I wouldn't leave them overnight with the stopping the drying. If those start to get mold on them, then you lose them. Whereas the cacao can get a little bit of mold and it's expected and then you get rid of the mold in the, um, with the winnowing. So that's what you're suggesting is that a solar dryer basically stops at night. So that's the kind of problematic feature with that approach. You know, another problem with a solar dryer is it's hard to control the temperature. Mm-hmm. So like we're drying at a temperature of um, about uh, 45 centigrade, maybe 115, something like that. And we don't want to dry hotter than that. And um, the solar dryer in a hot place, the temperature gets real hot. And yeah, you need to have a fan to pull that through at a temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Some automation. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like if someone were to really dial in their dried fruit production, that it's a viable value-added product to sustain a farm? Sure. I mean, it's going to come down to marketing, but yeah. Have you had anyone bring that to the farmer's market that you're working at? Yeah, we take it and other people take and dried fruit and it sells. Yeah. You know, it depends on how much you need to sell. And the thing is, too, is it can be sold to stores. Um, there's stores in Puerto Viejo that will buy stuff like that to resell. Chocolate, uh, dried fruit, um, a lot of things. I mean, we make um, soap as well. Oh. So that's another thing that can be sold at the farmer's market and to a store or that people come to buy. In Costa Rica, at the farmer's market, you get away with some stuff that um, in uh, to sell to a store, basically the stores, most stores don't care that much here, but they can, the Ministry of Salud can come to a store. And if the product doesn't have a, um, a label, a number of approval from the health department, then... They can just take it, and obviously the store, then the store takes that loss, and they're not going to buy any more. The farmer's market, that doesn't happen. There's a, You're allowed to sell stuff that you make on your own with just having um, – there's another kind of permit that we have that's a carnet for the – carnet de manipulación de alimentos. It's a, a food preparation card that you have to take a course to get. That is a lot easier than getting the approval on a product for sale. And um, 
they do come in and will check for that. You need to be a Costa Rican resident or a Costa Rican, a formal resident to get that uh, carnet. Okay, good to know. So besides the work that you're doing with the farmer's market and selling trees from your nursery, do you have any cottage industry here on the farm where you bring people in for, say, fruit tours or workshops or anything like that? We do that. Yeah. We have, so we have the botanical garden. Groups come to the botanical garden. Individuals come. And before the pandemic, that had regular open hours and a guide that was there to meet people at the reception. Is that on the site here? Yeah. Yeah. You saw the little yellow signs with the names and stuff. So that's what that's all for. People walk around with a map yeah. and a guidebook, or they can have a guided tour. So that's my son's business. I founded that, but uh, I turned it over to him and he runs that. Fruit tourism. And it's actually, it's good for birds and frogs and, and stuff like that too, since it goes through the pathways in the forest. So that's a good business. I basically put him through university with that. And then I was burned out on it. I said, you know, you want to come back and live in Puerto Viejo, you can have this business. I mean, he had helped with it and stuff on vacation and things. And so he took it over. Uh, workshops, we do. I have one coming up on the 30th of November, a Spanish language one on um, food forest. And um, I do workshops on propagation where we... Um, we learn, you know, from planting seeds and, and rooting cuttings to uh, doing air layers and grafting. Great. Well, it sounds like any listeners that make their way to Puerto Viejo should certainly be checking you out and uh, seeing what you've got going on here. I My mind's been blown all day long. Um, you know, before we end here, I just want to ask, do you have any last words of advice for landowners that are looking at their project like, okay, I did it. I got land. I'm ready to go. How am I going to make this work? How would you advise them to start? You know, I don't have specific advice about that. I mean, people have to, I think that um, they need to figure out what they want to do and then do what it takes to make that work. And uh, it really depends on them and the piece of land and, you know, what their what their goals are. Fair enough. That's all I can say. All right. No, that's great. And uh, you, there are a number of places where uh, people can find you online. Do you want to share some of those addresses or? You know, my wife's just in the process of changing the um, the domain name that we use. And so I'm not sure, but... People can find me on uh, and send an email, crgarden at macmac.com. And also WhatsApp is um, the Costa Rican country code, uh, plus 506-8829-4929. Also on Facebook, my name, Peter Kring, K-R-I-N-G. And there's also a Facebook page for Finca La Isla Botanical Garden. Google Maps, Finca La Isla, F-I-N-C-A-L-A-I-S-L-A. It'll come up in searches for Google Maps and on Google. Okay, great. So if there's any fruit hunters out here, now you know where to find them. Thanks so much for your time. It's just been an enlightening day. And I wish you all the best in what you're doing here and uh, whatever else might come through it. 
All right. Well, it was good to meet you. And yeah, I hope we see you back here soon again. Thank you very much. Likely. I'm going to take those trees and that I got from you and give them some nice homes. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. All right. Thank you. There it is. A delivery of insights worth listening to twice. What impresses me most about Peter's operation is that it's as simple and resilient as it is dynamic and impressive. Listening to this episode again, I've been reflecting on how generous these guests have been to put their day aside and share what they know in this way. We have a couple of other videos on our YouTube channel too, where Peter walks us through his gorgeous tree nursery and fruit forests. Make sure to check them out. The links are in the show notes along with another that'll take you to a PDF we've created highlighting Peter's soil amendment regimen. Peter shared so much great information with us. I've already contacted some farmers in our region that I know to be certified organic. Joining a local association sounds like an ideal way to get that set up. I've also liked what he said about making an impact in your region by designing a cottage industry that's simple, straightforward, and works. It'll give your neighbors more confidence to be curious into what you're up to. Peter's a voice of the ages, channeling and implementing the teachings of many while staying steady with his tasks at hand. If you'd like to get a visual peek into Peter's operations, be sure to check out the videos that we've prepared for you on our YouTube channel. Of course, subscribe to the channel when you get there. There are many more great stories to come. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast or seeing on YouTube, be sure to leave us a review. It'll help more people find the show. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.